Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I want to call you now actively to pay attention to the Word of God. And I say it that way today because I think this morning's message, it's an intensely personal message. I don't know if you agree with this statement or not, but I think today in America, talking about money is harder than talking about sexuality. I think people are very quick to tell you if they're straight or gay or if they're active or not active, but you ask them, how much do you make? That's like you, you just said, show me your underwear. You know, It's an intensely personal question. It's like we drew our boundaries way out there for every other subject, but when it comes to money, we hold our cards very close. And we feel like it's not anybody else's business to know anything about our money or our relationship with money. And yet what I find amazing is that the Bible speaks more about money and material possessions than about almost any other subject. This morning, we're going to wind down our series on Life on Life ministry. It's a study of Paul's first letter to Timothy, his spiritual son, his protege, And what we've been trying to do is look at this letter through the lens of how Christianity has always moved forward as one human being makes a spiritual investment in another human being. That we don't just figure out through osmosis how this kingdom works, but we grow spiritually and one person takes an active interest in another person and says, I want to walk with you and show you how this kingdom works, who this king of ours is, and what it really means to be a Christian. I wish more people had made those investments in our lives growing up because we, many of us had to figure out by looking from a distance what exactly does it mean to be a Christian. And many of us formed very strong opinions from the negative side of that equation. Well, I know what I don't want it to mean to be a Christian. I don't want to be like that person who really discouraged me or disgusted me growing up. But what does it really mean to follow Jesus? We learn that best when another person models it for us and brings us to that place through an active life-on-life engagement. And this last message on the series is number 18. It's a series we began last August, and it deals with a familiar but very difficult passage at the end of that letter. So the title of the message is just simply Getting Money Right. Okay, Getting Money Right. I had a different title at first. I didn't like it as much. I think this is a better title. I don't make much of titles, but such as it is, the real focus of this is if you get money wrong, you'll get almost everything else wrong. If you don't align your relationship to money with your relationship with God, it will derail you. And it won't just derail you spiritually, it will likely lead you to a derailment of many other things you care about. Things like your physical health, your friendships, your family. None of what I'm going to say this morning is spoken in a spirit of rebuke or criticism or judgment. But it comes from a deep place of yearning to see our church develop the most biblical relationship possible with money. Because if we get that right, that will unlock a great many things in our lives spiritually. 
The text is 1 Timothy 6. We're going to look at verses 9 to 10, and then 17 to 19. And here's what those verses say. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. I love this phrase, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Some of you may have heard of a man named Howard Dayton. If you haven't heard of him, you may have heard of the Crown Financial Ministries. It's a ministry that has borne great fruit here at Harvest as uh, many people have climbed out of debt, have understood biblical stewardship through that ministry. Howard Dayton is the man who founded that ministry. And he came to Christ while he was on the ascent as a very successful businessman. It seemed for a while that everything Howard Dayton touched turned into money. There are some people, I believe, that God has blessed with the Midas touch. When they set out to do business, that business grows. When they set out to make money, they make money. It's a skill like any other. Some people can pick up a violin and make music. Other people can look at a market, move to a city, and they can make money. They can create business. And Howard Dayton was one of those guys. But at at the height of his business career, he met Christ in a very powerful way. And one of the challenges he and some friends set out to do was to study exactly what the Bible had to say about this, the most important commodity in their lives. They realized that their entire lives revolved around the pursuit of money, so they wanted to know what God, their new king, had to say about money. Now, don't snooze right now. Don't zone out because this is relevant to all of us. Do you realize that when you become a Christian... One of the most important things that happens is that your new king moves into the realm of money and reshapes your attitude and relationship with money and with all the things surrounding money, with business, with career, with life choices, decisions about purchasing. He reorients everything in our relationship with money when he becomes king over our lives. When Howard Dayton set out to do this study, he was surprised to discover that the Bible has no less than 2,350 verses dealing directly with the subject of money and material possessions. That's, in fact, twice as many, um, that's second only to the topic of love. Love is the only other topic more commonly addressed in the Bible, and the topic of money is addressed twice as many times as a topic of faith and prayer put together. Why does the Bible have so much to say about money? And what's interesting is where the Bible does speak on money, where God has something to say about money, he speaks in very strong terms. 
He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't make subtle suggestions. He shouts out warnings about the power that money has over people. Because money figures in so prominently into the Bible, into God's heart for humanity, if we're going to make a life-on-life discipleship investment in another person's life, eventually you're going to have to get around to the topic of that person's relationship to money. And eventually you're going to have to reconcile your own relationship with money before you make an investment in anyone else's life in this area. You can't invest spiritually in another person's life and dodge this thorny subject of money for very long because eventually if you care about Scripture, God will have something to say to that person from a loving heart about what money means to them. <clears throat> the money itself, we've, always, we've all been taught this, money itself is morally neutral. We're the ones who convey on money a moral value. Do you understand that? Money itself is just a thing, just like a gun is just a thing. You've heard the saying, guns don't kill people, people kill people with guns. So a gun's just sitting there minding its own business, and you can pick it up and shoot at paper targets, defend your home, or kill your enemy. You're the one who brings moral value to this morally neutral commodity. If you get money wrong, the consequences painted in Scripture are devastating. Even in this text, what, what Paul is saying is if you get money wrong spiritually, it could lead to something as devastating as you walking away from Jesus forever. But if you get money right, the blessings are innumerable. If you align your heart in a right relationship with money, the blessings that money can bring you are unimaginable. So let's get right into it. What are some of the consequences of getting money wrong? See, nowhere in the Bible does God ever condemn riches or wealth in itself. In fact, some of the people he used most fruitfully for his purposes were very wealthy people. And I can say that's true of this church as well. Some of the people who have made the most incredible difference for God's kingdom in this congregation are among the wealthiest in this congregation. And, and that has always been, for me, uh, um, a litmus test of the spiritual vitality of our congregation. That for so many who are doing so much, their wealth has not gotten in the way of their availability to Jesus Christ. And yet, though he does not condemn wealth, he is not shy about consistently warning people that money is not this harmless little thing. It has, it's morally neutral, but it has tremendous power to seize hold of the human heart. Some of you know what I'm talking about because that's where you were or that's where you are right now. That nothing gets you nearly as animated or ex- as excited as this prospect of new business, a new market, a new revenue stream, a new product line, a new client. That what gets you really excited is not doing your taxes but getting that refund check. That the influx of money is one of the things that quickens your pulse the most naturally. And I'm not saying that in the spirit of judgment. You know, there are times when I'm very glad to get that check from the IRS. Give me my money back. 
Uncle Sam, it's not yours. And there are times when the coming in of cash is wonderful news. But Paul now aims his teaching at a select group of people. It's not just people who have a general yearning to have more resources. But he says, people who want to get rich. And this is where I think the English language tends to be more clunky than Greek or Hebrew. Certain languages have more nuanced language for certain things. And we only have really a couple words to express desire, want, desire. Right? But this particular word is not like this emotional longing. It's not like somebody who vaguely says, hey, boy, wouldn't it be just great to have more than enough money to pay your bills every month? Wouldn't it just be really neat to just be a little richer than I am now? That's general want. The kind of want that Paul is addressing here is about intention, about setting your heart, your mind, and resolve on a very concrete goal. It's not just generally going, wouldn't it be neat to be a little more more wealthy? It's the person who says, I will be a millionaire by the age of 35 if it kills me. It's my life's goal now. It is my single-minded focus. And the people he's addressing are people whose entire lives now are shaped by this one pursuit. You might be the last to realize that's who you are, but ask the people around you what you are driven by. Go ahead, and, and you don't have to do it right now, but if you have the courage, pull, a, pull together a few of the people closest to you and say, hey, what do you think makes me tick? What do you see me get most excited about? What do you think drives me or motivates me to make all my biggest life decisions? What's the one thing that if it fell apart from me, you think would unravel me, would devastate me? For some people, it would be the fading of beauty. For others, it would be the loss of a reputation. For others, it would be damage to their children. But what is the thing that you are so centered on that it drives everything? And Paul is addressing here not just people who happen to be wealthy or who are good at creating wealth, but people whose single-minded purpose is the acquisition of money. And partly the reason that that is such a toxic goal for life is that it's rarely money itself that drives a person, but they're after money because the money funds the pursuit of something even more fundamental. That there's something else they yearn for in their hearts, something that God himself wants to provide, but they would rather do it themselves with money, believing that they could buy their way to the filling of this emptiness in their heart. So there are people who've always wanted to be accepted, people who always wanted to be respected or to feel safe, and they don't ever feel that. And so they believe that by the pursuit of money, they can create that feeling, fill that void for themselves. So it's not money. They're not the kind of people who take $100 bills and fill their bathtub and just soak in it. It's not that they love money, but they love what they believe money is making possible for them. That's why the love of money is a sin that, like carbon monoxide, is a silent killer. It often hides under the surface. And when a person sets their heart so completely on a desire or a goal, when we do that with anything or anyone, what we're actually doing is giving over control of our lives to that thing. We're saying that I will no longer... I'm on autopilot. All I know is this is where I'm headed. I'm going to let that goal... Define every other thing that I do, every other experience that I have. In fact, if you have a love for money, 
It can even reshape your morality over time. It can affect your ethics, what you're willing to do. I've talked about this book, I think maybe 12 years ago or something. But there's this book, very interesting book, written by a guy named James Patterson and a guy named Peter Kim. Just signed it, and she said, I know like 80 Peter Kims. And uh, (laughs) not one of the ones I know, but they wrote a book in 1991 called The Day America Told the Truth. They gave this exhaustive 1,800 questionnaire to 2,000 random Americans across the country just to figure out what do Americans believe about a wide range of topics. And some of the questions were crazy. One of them was, what would you be willing to do for $10 million in cash? Have you ever stayed up late at at Denny's and had that conversation with your friends? What would you do for 10? My kids are always asking me stuff like that. Dad, would you eat a piece of our dog's poo for 10 million? I'm like, no. How about for 10 million? No. There's no amount of money for which I would eat a piece of dog poo. Let's just settle that right now. There's not enough money in the world to get me to do that. But that seems to be a a subject of fascination for our kids. What would you do for money? They asked that question to America, and here are some of the responses. Just, I'm not going to go over it, but look at it. <laughs> Am I the only one bothered by the fact that 7% of our neighbors would kill a stranger? Ten, look at this one, last one. 3% would put their kids up for adoption for $10 million. <laughs> anyway, you don't have to... This is just a silly illustration to show you that when what we want most is money and what we believe money could give us, respect, accomplishment, pride, anything, that in pursuit of that money, people are willing to do just about anything. And don't think this is some frivolous exercise. The truth is that once you set your heart on one single-minded goal, it will determine what you're willing to do to get there. And many people, history is littered with stories of people who have pursued money and sacrificed families, have sacrificed marriages, have thrown away their physical health, have ruined friendships. I've known stories of people who stole money from their good friends in a fake investment just to enrich themselves and they burned what would have been an amazing friendship over a little money. Well, not a little money. But no money is worth that. Earlier this year, in the second sermon he preached at ICC this year, my brother made an amazing point. I was listening to the sermon because my wife made me listen to the sermon. And it was a good sermon. I mean, I got to tell you, my little baby brother can preach. And he he made this excellent point in this sermon about this rich young ruler, the, the encounter Jesus has with the rich young ruler. He managed to get two sermons out of that text. Amazing. And one of the things he said is, this is one of the only times when talking about sin that Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, guys, watch out for this one. Be on your guard against it, because if you don't watch out, it will sneak up on you. It's unlike every other sin that we struggle with. If you struggle with lust, if you struggle with anger, if you struggle with gluttony, there's really, it's very hard to deny it. Those are self-evident struggles, right? What, what Steve said in his sermon is, nobody's committing adultery and all of a sudden goes, hey, you're not my wife. <laughs> it's not like it's going to sneak up on you. You know what you're doing while you're doing it. 
But with this particular sin of the love of money, of greed, of a desire for wealth and what it brings me, it is so subtle and so quiet, you can often miss it. In fact, most people who are in the grips of the love of money will be the last to admit they are. Almost everyone I've met who I'm convinced has fallen in love with money will be the first to deny that that's true. You would say, oh, you really love money? No, I don't. No, I don't. You're crazy. I like money. I don't love it. It's like a junior high conversation where you're like, do you like that girl? No. I don't. She's all right, but I don't like her. Yeah, you do. No. I... You're going to end up marrying that girl. You know you are. We're the first to deny when we've fallen in love with money. That's why we need community. That's why we need one another, because there are certain things that are going to happen to us that we will be the last to know about. This is one of those things that is such a subtle thing that if you don't have others who have the courage and love for you to tell you the truth, you may never know until it's gotten a hold of you and has taken over. And here's the other part of it, the, the sort of quiet conspiracy is many people will not mess with your relationship with money because they don't want anyone to mess with their relationship with money. So it's a conspiracy of silence where we say, let's all just leave each other alone about this money business so we can all enjoy just spending and doing how we please and not get in each other's business. And yet this is the one topic which God addresses more than any other topic. He never said about anything else that this is the number one threat to the worship of me. Think about this, guys. This is the one thing which God says is the greatest threat to the human heart for the pure and unadulterated worship of God. And yet in many churches, there is a sort of conspiracy of silence where we say, let's not go there with each other because that's uncomfortable and it's none of your dang business. But I really believe that if we care about each other's faith, we've got to go there because God keeps going there. And because the consequences, the implications to our spiritual well-being are so huge, we can't get money wrong. We can't afford to. Paul reminds Timothy that those who love money, and what an interesting verb to use there, not just desire, but he uses the same language about money that he uses about God. So often in scripture, when money is being taught, the language used is the same language used for God. It's the language of worship and love. Because that seems to be the nature of the power that money has over us, is it's very, very easy for it to slip into the place that God should have. Think about what rightful place God should play in our lives. He should be the one who drives most of our big decisions. He should be the one who makes us feel good about ourselves, who makes us feel safe about tomorrow. He should be the one who defines what our values are as a family, as an individual. But for many people, without their realizing it, money, and whatever that money symbolizes, takes the place of God in that way. So let me ask you something. If you went to see your doctor and your doctor said, listen, buddy, if you don't make some lifestyle changes, you're going to die. I'm not kidding around anymore. If you don't get on a treadmill, you're dead. You have serious heart 
issues forming. Do you hear me? How many of you would walk out of that doctor's office and you'd be like, where do I want to eat lunch? Would you just blow it off? Be like, wow, that was pretty heavy. And then just keep going? If you met with your financial planner and he said, hey, at this rate, you're not going to be able to retire. You will be sleeping in pad shelters during your retirement years. If you don't do something to save some money now, you are in big trouble when you stop working. How many of you walk out of that meeting and go, that's pretty heavy. Where do you want to eat lunch? Anybody? Just blow that off? If your home inspector said, listen, bad news for you. You guys have serious black mold all under your drywall. It's killing you. You're getting so sick. Have you felt nauseated lately? Do your kids have all kinds of allergies? You have mold all over your house. It's going to kill you. That's pretty heavy. Where do you want to eat lunch? See, the reason I keep bringing up where you want to eat lunch is because sometimes God speaks in this room. Not every week, but sometimes you know it. He speaks to you, and you're like, and it's as if our only spiritual work we owe to God is to be convicted. Man, that's pretty heavy. And then we walk out with that conviction, sit in the car, and the next question, where do you want to eat lunch? It's like that heavy news was laid out there, and then it's just like, wow. Well, whatever. Where do you want to, let's just get moving with our lives. There's so much bad news, so many warnings we would never blow off. And yet God says, if you get money wrong, you could lose your whole faith. Will you just walk away from that and go, wow. Yeah, I guess so. You're going to do something about it if you care about it, right? And I want to encourage you not to let this very heavy subject just float off of you. But if you're here with your significant other, if you're here by yourself, when you get out to that car, just for five minutes, that's all I'm asking. Five and just sit there for a second and just go. <sighs> I think we need to have a, t- a conversation about this subject. Let's grab lunch tomorrow and let's talk. Let's get really serious about this. Let's roll up our sleeves because God says that if we have the wrong relationship with money, we lose more than just a few things. The consequences are devastating. And a wise person does not blow off a warning. I'll give you one last point here. If you get money wrong, there's a lot of bad news. But let me shift gears here with you. If you get money right, money becomes even more powerful than it used to be before you knew Jesus. One of the most obvious signs of my coming to Christ and being changed inside has been for me the genuine change of my perspective on money. And there was a time when every time I got a little money, I would be excited because I would get to buy something I wanted. And mostly it was clothes Not because I like clothes, but because I liked girls. And girls seem to like a sharp-dressed man, and so I would focus on things like that. I wanted a nicer car. I wanted to buy girls, basically. I was buying the stuff that would give me access to the ladies' attention. That's how shallow your pastor is. Without Jesus. (laughs) Okay? 
And so I would get so excited when I would get a, a, a summer job or get a little extra money where my parents gave me a big Christmas gift because it, money was my life. And I can tell you that meeting Jesus, I experienced a genuine change in the way I felt about money. And here's the thing. I don't like money less. I like it even more than I used to because I've discovered its true value. Money excites me now for totally different reasons than it used to. Paul says to Timothy, gather the people in your church that happen to be rich and tell them this. Don't put your hope in your money. It's too uncertain a thing. Yes, you're wealthy today, but tomorrow you might not be. Perhaps even worse, tomorrow you might be more wealthy and it will dominate your spirit even more. Don't put your hope in something as uncertain as wealth, but put your hope in God. Let me give you an illustration. If God gives a woman physical beauty in her youth, that's a blessing. Okay? And she's meant to receive that beauty as a gift from God and even to enjoy the experience of being physically beautiful. I don't know what that feels like. Jeannie does. I always ask her, what's it like to be you? And she's like, eh, it's not that great. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you're truly beautiful physically and you receive it as a gift, you can say to God, thank you. I enjoy this. I like this. It's like any other gift. If God gives it to you, if you can legitimately receive it and enjoy it. But here's where the trouble starts, is if you ascribe to that gift some kind of ultimate value, and you say, not only is this a gift, but it is the true measure of my worth as a human being. That I'm only worth something because I'm physically beautiful. And when a person does that, they use that one thing to accomplish every other thing. They walk in the room, they're like, everyone should serve me, right, because I'm so hot. No, that's not, sweetie, that's not how it works. You're really good-looking, but that's not everything. You're more than just that. There's a person underneath that face. Don't you see? When you ascribe ultimate value to a thing that wasn't supposed to be ultimate, and you start associating your sense of worth with what you have, you're setting yourself up for terrible, terrible tragedy because that thing you've anchored to is uncertain. It's fleeting. It will come and it will go. It might be here today. I promise you it likely will not be there tomorrow. And for the woman who seizes upon physical beauty as the full measure of what she's worth, well, that's an uncertain thing because that beauty, can we all admit together, it fades. Do you remember the pictures of Elizabeth Taylor? And, she got, and the people who knew her when she was like the it girl were like, wow, remember when she was young? And the thing about it is what I loved about Liz Taylor was as she aged, she didn't try to put on skinny jeans and do all this. She just grew gracefully old. I loved it. She focused on friendships and other things. She just, you know what I'm saying? Like she had this famous friendship with one of the photographers who shot the most pictures of her. And I really enjoy watching a person who can receive a gift in this season and gracefully evolve into receiving a different gift in a different season. But when you pin your worth to your net worth, you are on very thin ice. 
Do you see that? Because what do you do when that thing you have staked everything on starts to fade? When a woman thinks beauty is what gives her her worth and that beauty fades, there is a fear and a panic as she realizes the thing which made me worth something is gone now. What am I worth now? What do I have now? And so Paul says in mercy, in love to the wealthy, if you are wealthy, that's wonderful. Receive it as a gift from a God who gives us everything for our enjoyment. Don't just give away all of it. You're legitimately able to enjoy being wealthy. You don't have to buy a jalopy just because you're a Christian. You can buy a car that runs okay. Don't go spending $8 million on a car, but you know, you can buy a car that runs well, that looks beautiful. You can enjoy this as a gift, but don't ascribe to it this ultimate value that says, I am worth what I have, and what I have determines what I'm worth. That's the arrogance that so many wealthy people fall into, is they believe that their wealth, which translates to my ability to make wealth, means that I'm somehow a superior person to another person who has less. They would never say it in such crass terms, but in their hearts, that's what they feel is, I don't know, like if you worked harder, you might have more. I've worked very hard for my money. I'm proud of what I've done. My net worth confers to me my worth as a person. And what Paul is saying, what God is saying to us is don't do that because money is a very uncertain thing. Instead, put your hope in me because then everything I give you and everything I take away in that season you can receive as something which God intended from a heavenly father who always has your back, who always watches over you. For the person who stakes everything on their wealth, when the wealth fades, there is terror there. Some of you have lived through that experience because you have gone the five-star life and then something happened economically and you had to go back to the Priceline three-and-a-half-star life and I've gone through that. I grew up as a surgeon's son. I drove new cars. I mean, by the time I graduated college, I had owned six cars and a motorcycle. And the only one of those things I bought was my motorcycle. <laughs> my parents were wealthy. I wasn't. But I can tell you that I was used to that. And then when I answered the call to ministry, I found myself the object of everybody's charity. They, they kept bringing me food, and they, felt, they kept feeling sorry for me. And I was getting really upset. I'm like, hey, dudes, I'm the one who pays people. I have money. Don't. And then I realized, actually, I don't. I lost my daddy's money. I'm broke. And I realized that when you're used to seeing yourself a certain way, it is very hard to see yourself differently. To so publicly have to downgrade my home, my car, my wardrobe, our vacations. It's not an easy thing. And so what he says is don't anchor your worth to your net worth. Instead, just accept that God who watches over you in every season of your life will assign to you today the portion you're meant to have, and you can use it for his sake. You can enjoy it for yourself. But whether he gives or whether he takes away, what you have is your true riches, is your relationship with a God who never sleeps, who watches over you all the time. That's worth more than $100 million in the bank. That's why Paul was able to say in his own testimony to the Philippians, I know how to get along with humble means, 
And I also know how to live in prosperity. Not many people can say that. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. You could make a late-night infomercial and make a billion dollars selling this secret. Hey, everyone, can't sleep? I found the secret of being happy both when I'm broke and when I'm filthy rich. Want to know it? It's this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That it's not my money or my lack of money that defines how I live, but that Christ has my back 24-7. That's why I can handle poverty and I can handle wealth. Neither one changes fundamentally who I am. I I think we all want to be that kind of person. But check your heart really honestly. Are you in that place? And then he says to them, command these people who are rich to put their transformation to the test. One sure sign that you have gotten money right is that you find a joy in giving it away. I thought that was a lie. When I was in youth group, I'm like, who on earth could enjoy giving away their money? That's stupid. If you give it away, someone else has it, and you don't. How could that produce pleasure for somebody? And yet I think one of the sure signs that we are changing spiritually is that we discover the joy of generosity. Now pause for a moment and think about that. Is that your experience? Have you experienced at some point in your life how good it feels to meet the needs of other people, to to be generous? In other words, one of the signs that Jesus has laid hold of our lives is that we begin converting earthly wealth into eternal wealth. We start taking what is going to rot away, and we can't carry it off this earth with us, and we turn it into something that will follow us into the afterlife. It's interesting that throughout Scripture, when people meet God and make a, a very significant decision to follow him, very often it's accompanied by a radical gesture with respect to money. Do you remember Zacchaeus, when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the ways he expressed his newfound joy and wholeness as a human being is he declared, I'm going to give half my money to the poor, and I'm going to pay back everybody I ever cheated four times what I stole from them. He said this without shame or hesitation, very publicly, and it was after he said that that Jesus proclaimed, surely salvation has come to this house. Why would he say that? Because that immediate switch in his attitude towards money signaled that he had had a major change happen inside his heart. Do you remember in Acts 19 where a bunch of people who used to practice sorcery were saved in the city of Ephesus? And as a sign of repentance and of putting away their old lifestyle, they took out their very valuable magic scrolls. They gathered all of them together, they built a bonfire, and they all ceremonially threw those very valuable scrolls into the fire. Luke records for us that the total value of all those scrolls added together was about 50,000 days wages. In today's money, that would be roughly $9 million. It was the sum of a lifetime of patiently accumulating things that had value. And in just one moment of meeting Christ... They took their entire accumulated net worth 
and cast it into the flames as if to say, I, I completely have a different attitude about possessions than I used to. We call it conversion because meeting Jesus is supposed to create radical change in our hearts. You, you guys still with me? I'm going to be done in like three minutes. Hang on just a little bit more. We call it conversion because change happens. And one of the changes that we see very early on is our economics completely change. I think it's the same thing that happens when you fall in love. Single men tend to be pretty selfish and stingy, but then when you fall in love, you do really stupid things with your money. Girl, I'll get you that anytime you want. Let's go to restaurants I'd never eat at. I'm not even going to look at how much stuff costs because you're worth it. When you fall in love, it changes your economics. And you know that a marriage is in trouble when every time you go out to dinner with your husband, he's like, are you sure you want the lobster? Why don't you get the ham instead? Something's wrong because love impacts economics. It gives you a whole new paradigm to think about money. For a lot of men, they get stressed out when their wives won't let them buy an Xbox, but if the kid needs anything, for a lot of women, their kids are like, I don't care what the kid needs, I'll spend it all. New shoes, sure. New shirt, sure. This camp, that, that, that activity, sure. Love changes our economics. And I think what God is saying is, if you really have met me and fallen in love, doesn't it stand to reason that your view and your relationship with money should also be converted? Because money is the thing that gave you a sense of worth and safety before. It's what enabled you to pursue what really you wanted in your heart. But in Christ, you now have all those things in abundance. You wanted to be rich so that people would look up to you. In Christ, you have infinite worth. You wanted to be rich so that someone would love you. In Christ, you are more loved than you can imagine. You wanted to be rich because you wanted to feel like your life meant something, that you accomplished something. When you meet Jesus, the most important act of human life has now taken place. In Christ, everything you use money to get has been provided to you in abundance in your heart of hearts. So that now, instead of using money to get a life, you've been given a new life, a, a fantastic life, an eternal life. Now you can spend everything to lay hold of the life that is truly life. That is conversion. That's the kind of change the gospel brings. And I say this so that you can be invited into a period of genuine reflection in your own life. Has your attitude and relationship to money radically changed in the wake of meeting Jesus Christ? Does he inform every major decision you make about where you will work, what you will buy, where you will move, where you will live? Please understand as I wrap this up that I am not speaking this way to produce guilt or just a heaviness. But I feel like I'm a doctor saying to you, maybe it's that time to consider if you don't make some changes, you may have to end up 
bearing some consequences you don't want. We can't afford to neglect this particular issue very long. If you follow Jesus, you have to be very decisive in your relationship with money. You have to know where you stand with it. You can't leave it to chance. Because the consequences of getting it wrong are huge, but the blessings of getting it right are tremendous. There are so many good examples in this congregation for you to latch on to. There are so many people in this church who have been given so much by God and all of it still remains firmly in the hands of God. You don't have to look very far to find people who can show you what that conversion looks like. But I think it begins with each of us in our own lives taking stock, being laid bare before God and saying, I don't want to go down that road where money rather than Jesus defines my life. I will not pin my worth to something as uncertain as wealth or beauty or power or fame. But I will trust Jesus and he will take care of me every day of my life till I die. I can't always tell as the preacher whether the looks on your faces are anger disgust, guilt, I don't know, or just conviction. I don't know what I'm seeing, but I think it would be good if we closed our eyes (laughs) and just got before God and just said, you know, Lord, this is a touchy subject. There are very few human beings who can talk to me about this, but I invite you to talk to me about this. I want you to expose for me where I might have gone wrong in my relationship with money. And I want you to steer my heart, Lord, to a more godly, more biblical relationship with money before it ends up costing me everything I care about. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.